Good morning. Good to be with you. It's good to set our minds in the right direction, to set our hearts the proper perspective, reminding ourselves of who God is and what he has most graciously done for us in Christ, that we can sing with all confidence, uh, that he most certainly hears us, that we can pray with all assurance, that he delights to answer the prayers of his people. And with that same confidence and assurance, we open his word, that he wants to speak to us, that he delights to reveal himself to us. So it's with glad anticipation that we get to do so. Would you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Uh, for the past 12 or 13 or so um, sermons, we've been making our way through this letter of Paul to the church at Colossae. And this morning, we come to the end of this book. So Colossians chapter 4, we're considering the verses there in verse 7 through 18. Colossians 4, let's begin reading verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who's one of you, They will tell you everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes, you're to welcome him. And Jesus, who's called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, Have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write with this greeting, my own hand, remember my chains, grace be with you. Let's pray and let's ask that God would be faithful to his promise to open his word to our hearts. Father, where else shall we go knowing that you've given to us the very words of life? Thank you that you've been so faithful to reveal yourself to us, particularly in the ministry and the incarnation of our Lord Jesus, that you've seen fit to give us your very word inspired by your spirit, given to apostles and prophets that have gone before us, preserved for us to this very day, And Lord, we especially have a tremendous privilege that we read and hear it in our own language, that we have multiple copies that we can turn to and open and consider and meditate upon. And Lord, that in your faithfulness to us, that you've you've given us your word and that you've caused us, Lord, to be able to hear and to understand and that you've given us your spirit. And so we profess our great need for the ministry of your own spirit. Illuminate your word so that we might see and hear as you intend. 
or even in a portion in a passage that we may consider just final closing thoughts and even the temptation to turn the page to the next book. Lord, this is your holy and errant inspired word. And so we pause to receive it as such. Pray that you would help us, that you would be our teacher. And Lord, that you would continue to build us up in the most holy faith, we pray. Amen. Well, as we are coming to the end of this book, it's only natural to kind of step back and survey um, where we've come, kind of as if you've gone on a a hike or you've walked some distance or you've come to a place where you can kind of look back and see, this is where we started, this is where we are, and found myself doing that as we've come to the end of the book of Colossians. And as I step back and as I survey kind of the whole scene of these four chapters, there is one overarching theme that really pulls together the focus of this letter and its ultimate importance for our lives. At the core, everything that Paul has to say in these four short chapters has everything to do with the new life that we experience in Christ. Even going back to the opening phrases of chapter 1, where Paul begins to speak of the gospel that had come to them, he says in verse 5, Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed is in the whole world, bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel is good news that God is reconciling sinners to himself through Christ. And this news is radically transformational. It changes lives. The gospel bears good fruit. The gospel transforms lives, so much so that as Paul writes about this gospel and the good news that changes, he says that it reconciles us to God. The very God who should judge us and condemn us in our sin, this news announces that sinners can actually be reconciled to this God through Christ. And that this same gospel, it not only reconciles us to God, but it unites us to a new family. We have brothers and sisters that we might not have had because we have brothers and sisters in Christ. And uniting us to brothers and sisters in Christ, it not only stops there, but this good news transforms even our very homes. The way that we relate to each other as husbands and wives and parents and children, our particular vocations that we're called into. This good news transforms not only our homes, but the world around us, the way that we perceive the world around us. What is our role in this place at this time? How are we to think about those that are outside Christ? This gospel transforms even that understanding. All of this means that the new life that we have individually in Christ is not meant to be lived isolated. You are saved as an individual, but you are not isolated from the rest of Christ's body. It brings us into this new family and it unites us with those who we would otherwise have no relationship with. Have you ever thought about that? Particularly as we stand and we sing and we can see one another. That for many of us in here, there is no good reason that we would know one another apart from the gospel of Christ. That you have very different hobbies and pastimes than maybe somebody else. Or you have a very different season of life than someone else. There is no logical, earthly, natural reason that you would dedicate your life to and share so much of your life with the very members in this body were it not for the new life you have in Christ. 
In God's goodness, we end up sharing our resources. We share our table, our evenings, our weekends with the very ones that were once strangers to us, but now in Paul's words, have become very dear to us. The gospel transforms the way that we relate to one another. And in this list of names that's in the final 11 verses here is yet another reminder of that very experience. This letter's filled with sound doctrine and faithful instruction, but it would not be complete without these parting greetings and these list of names that reveal the loving concern of God's people for one another. In the span of just 11 verses, Paul mentions 10 people directly. And so, even from a list of names like this, we can make a final few observations concerning the new life that we share in Christ and how it's God's design that our lives would be shaped and interwoven by one another for the purposes to which God has called us to. Let's consider, first of all, making a few observations that there is an encouragement that comes from faithful brothers. In this list of names, the first thing that we can say is that there is an encouragement that ought to come from faithful brothers. Look back at verse 7. Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place. So in drawing this letter to a close, Paul mentions two men, and how he's sending these two men from where he is at to them in the city of Colossae. And he says in verse 7 that they're going to tell you of my activities, that they might know how Paul is doing, verse 8. And then again in verse 9, notice, these brothers will tell them everything that has taken place. This, the men that Paul is sending to them are Tychicus and Onesimus. You can do a quick kind of survey and see if these men show up elsewhere in our New Testament, and they do. Tychicus was one of Paul's uh, beloved and faithful brothers, a fellow bondservant, who traveled with him at various points in his ministry. Uh, he shows up in Acts chapter 20, Ephesians 6, he's mentioned with Paul as well, 2 Timothy 4, he's still with Paul, and we see him also in Titus 3. These two men were bound together because of their work in the Lord. There's another man that Paul says, I'm sending to you, and it's Onesimus. Onesimus was actually a bond slave. If you want his prequel, his backstory, then read the book of Philemon. And you understand a little bit about his particular character and how God came to rescue him and his particular vocation. In all of these men, he calls them faithful and beloved brothers in Christ. I'm sending them to you. The primary reason these two men are being sent from Paul to the church at Colossae is that they would inform them and encourage them. We want to tell you how Paul's doing, and this isn't just like a weather report so that you know what's going on. We want to strengthen your hearts. We want to build you up. We want you to be encouraged by what you hear is happening in Paul's life. Now, what is happening in Paul's life? He's in prison. We're sending you good news. Your beloved apostle is in chains. 
Now, why is that encouragement? Why is that something that would actually strengthen and help these believers in this Gentile city? Well, if we just read through the letter of Colossians, we're able to piece together a little bit of why this is actually very good news. Back in chapter 1, verse 24, Paul speaks of his own sufferings, his imprisonment, as suffering for the sake of the Colossians, in particular for the sake of Christ's body, which is the church. Okay, so Paul's not just having the flu. He hasn't just been unjustly accused of something. He's uh, not merely just going through a hard season. It's a direct result of suffering for the church. It gets more explicit in chapter 4, verse 3. I'm actually in prison, he says, for speaking forth the mystery of Christ, which is why the, re- the reason that I have been in prison. Okay, Paul's in prison. He's an imprisoned for speaking about Christ and who he is. And so, as Tychicus and Onesimus are sent to the church, it's to inform you, this is where Paul is, and we want you to know, you should be greatly encouraged by this. Why? Well, because Paul says that this is not, this suffering, this imprisonment, is not just on behalf of the church for them, like, I'm here for you so that you can do what you need to do, It's that, but it's not only that. Paul sees this as actually God's means to reach God's people through the gospel. My suffering is furthering the gospel ministry. If you want a little parallel about how this works, you could read in Philippians chapter 1, where Paul essentially says the same thing to that same group, to that group of believers at the church of Philippi, that the whole palace guard is actually having the opportunity to hear about Jesus. Because they would rotate through and, you know, no doubt, uh, what are you in here for? Uh, Preaching Christ. Come again? Uh, Preaching Christ. Well, let me tell you. Let me explain. And then you get to go into the segue of, who is this Messiah? Well, let me tell you. Who is this Lord? You may think it's Caesar, but there's actually a greater Lord. His name is, and you can imagine how well Paul did this. And not only is the whole palace guard hearing the gospel, Paul would say to the Philippians, look, other brothers who were a little timid, they're actually emboldened to preach the gospel. Paul sends Tychicus and Onesimus to say, remember my chains, and in remembering my chains, I want you to be encouraged. Why? Friends, there is such great encouragement when we remember that difficult circumstances are no hindrance to the good fruit of the gospel. We are so prone to believe that when circumstances aren't right, certainly this can't be the will of the Lord, or somehow gospel fruit is going to be hindered. But read your Bible, and what you will find is that God, despite what we might think or believe at first impression, actually delights to use difficult circumstances to glorify himself and cause good fruit to be born. Church, you need to hear that the Apostle Paul, he's in prison, and good fruit is being born, and you ought to be encouraged in that. Whatever difficult circumstances you might think you are in, that does not mean that the work of God is short-circuited. I'm sending these two faithful brothers to remind you of that. But not only the description, um, the description of these men, it's equally as important as to the tasks that they were given. This is what they're going to do, but notice what Paul says about them. I mean, not only are they beloved brothers of Paul, but he describes them also as fellow servants and as a faithful minister. What's commendable about these men? 
in part, faithfulness and servanthood. Faithfulness, we know what it means. It's that consistency. It involves some degree of humility to have the instruction of Scripture be the shaping force of your life and your desire to be obedient to it. To be faithful is to say, I want to please the one to whom I'm serving. That's why they're interwoven, and not only this faithfulness attribute, but this fact that they're marked out as fellow servants. Servanthood would be the posture that they took, the mindset that they chose to adopt, considering others as more important than themselves. The church needs men who see themselves as servants and seek to be faithful in their charge. There's great encouragement from beloved brothers who see themselves as servants and seek to be faithful to that charge, particularly because we live in a culture that is awash in elevating gifting over character, that loves to praise charisma over consistency, and the church is rotting because of that. We have a fascination. It's not just the world that loves to make much of charisma and gifting. Christians, we are guilty of this as well. But if we look to the scriptures and see what is elevated in value and the encouragement that comes from brothers who are servants and seek to be faithful, what a difference that makes in Christ's church. Remember Christ's own teaching in the Gospel of Mark as he pulled his disciples aside and knowing that they are going to be confronted with the very worldview that says, if you're in charge, you should dominate those underneath you. Mark 10, 42, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Church, let's take seriously the example of these two men and the admonition and the exhortation that they are given, and let's pray for faithful brothers who see themselves as servants to Christ. That there's a great encouragement within the church when it is filled with men and women who see themselves as servants who seek to be faithful. Just as the church at Colossae would be encouraged in such a way, we ought to want to be built up by the same sort of brothers and sisters who see themselves, hey, I'm a servant. And my desire is to be faithful to my Lord Jesus. What might that do to a church culture? What might that do for a group of churches? What might that do for a group of a body of believers considering themselves wanting to be faithful to the charge that Christ has given? It's our first observation. What's the second? Well, there's also, from this list of names, I think we can see there is a comfort that comes from fellow workers. Comfort from fellow workers. Look down at verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who's called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, 
And they have been a comfort to me. This is yet another reminder that Paul is in prison for testifying of Christ, but even in his imprisonment and even in his testifying of Christ, he says, I'm not alone. He mentions three, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. They were not only his fellow workers, as he calls them, but he says specifically, they have been a great comfort to me. Though in prison, Paul was strengthened and comforted through the lives of three men. Culturally, in Rome, prisoners were largely dependent upon the kindness of others for their well-being. There was no guaranteed three square meals. There was no guaranteed rights. You were dependent for food, clothing, medicine, and general care upon any who might be merciful and provide that for you. Rome did not consider that their priority. And so by saying that these three men are not only my fellow workers, but they are also have been a great comfort to me, that's our clue that these men came alongside Paul to help him, to comfort him in the midst of his affliction. Friends, don't overlook the ministry of your presence. No doubt they had many good words to say, but Paul's admonition of them here is that they're fellow workers and that they've been a great comfort to him. I think so often we struggle with how best to express our love and concern for those who are going through trials or affliction that we don't know what to do. And we make a couple of mistakes. Sometimes we are unsure of what to say to that person. We know they're struggling. We know they're going through it. Our heart is breaking for them. But we don't know what to say, so we ignore them. We don't say anything. And we just pretend like they don't exist. That's probably not very encouraging when you're walking through a season of infliction to feel like you're just ignored because I don't know what to say to you. Well, the other mistake that we can make is we so want to help, but we're so unsure of what to say, so we unhelpfully attempt to say everything and to bring great comfort into their lives put these two scenarios out just to remind us of sometimes the great ministry and encouragement comes by simply your ministry of presence. Sometimes you don't need to say anything but to sit with. And certainly the the wisdom of God's word is the ultimate balm that we need in any affliction. But don't overlook the simple ability to come alongside somebody and sit and be there. Clean some dishes. I'm going to the store. What can I get you? Hey, I'm coming over. I grabbed some chicken wings. Just to be with, to come alongside. Dave Furman's written a book called Being There, How to Love Those Who Are Hurting, and it's a good gift to the church. He exhorts us to remember that there is a ministry that is without words. He goes on to talk about the words that we ought to say, but before he gets there, he just makes the same point. There is a ministry that oftentimes you don't need words, but you need to be alongside. He notes how Job's friends were fantastic friends until they opened their mouths. And sometimes we can be the most encouragement by just being there. You might not know what to say. But you know how to be a human. You know how to extend kindness. You know what you would want done or what you might need in that scenario. And so 
you seek to be a great encouragement. Can someone say of you, they've been a great comfort to me? Have you invested in the lives of your brothers and sisters to such a degree that there is someone that would say of you, they have been such an encouragement to me? Or could that be the testimony of our church? As people get to know us, maybe begin attending or move here, and the general sense that they are getting from one another is they seek to be a great comfort to one another. It's a tremendous testimony. That is a wonderful praise. These three men were a great encouragement to the Apostle Paul, even as an affliction. Thirdly, what other observations can we make? There's the example of hardworking servants. There's an example of hardworking servants. Look back at verse 12. Paphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. You might remember this is not the first time we've read of this man Epaphras earlier. Paul mentioned him back in chapter 1. He says the gospel is there, it's bearing fruit among you, and it's increasing. Why? Well, chapter 1, verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. We've heard about your faith in Christ, your love for all the saints. The gospel is bearing fruit among you. And we know this has happened because of Epaphras is the one who's opened up God's word. He's been a faithful minister. He's taught you these things. Epaphras was most likely converted under uh, the ministry of Paul, most likely in Ephesus, returned back to his hometown of Colossae, began to speak of Jesus. Apparently over some time, a church was established. Epaphras was there serving as one of its ministers, also had some relationship to a neighboring city in Laodicea, that God was using this man to strengthen and encourage his church. And he, like Paul, he's a servant of Jesus Christ. That's the title that he's given, the description given to him. Epaphras, one of you, your hometown boy, a servant of Christ Jesus, meaning he serves the anointed one the Savior of God's people. Don't just glance over those words. A servant of Christ. A servant of the Messiah. A servant of the very one whom God promised in Genesis chapter 3 that he would send to crush the head of the serpent. The very one that was promised in Isaiah that the branch of righteousness would come. The Redeemer of God's people. That one the Messiah, the Christ. He is Jesus. And Epaphras serves that one. What a tremendous privilege it is to be called a servant of the Messiah. Have you ever just stopped to think of that? There's no greater master anyone could ever serve than to remember that like Epaphras, we are servants of the Messiah the mediator between God and man, that our great privilege is not just to be among him, but we get to be servants of him. And here Epaphras 
being commended that he is a fellow servant of Christ Jesus. And more specifically in what Paul speaks of this man is that this man Epaphras, he struggles, notice, not with God's people, but for God's people. He's struggling. He's laboring through what? Through his ministry of prayer. He is praying, as Paul says, that they will stand mature and fully assured of the will of God. And where did Epaphras get this? We most likely learned it from Paul himself because remember what Paul wrote earlier. You can flip over to chapter 1, verse 28. Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. And you keep going back, back up to verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I want you to know this man, Epaphras, and I want you to see who he is. He's this model, Paul is saying, of what pastors and elders ought to look like. He is a faithful servant. He's a faithful minister. And what is a faithful minister? He's a hardworking servant. He struggles and toils on the behalf of his people, laboring for them in prayer and proclaiming Christ to them so that they might be presented as mature in Christ. I think it would be wise for us to pause and consider as we pray for more elders and as you pray for your current elders, let's pray according to this model. Let's pray that God would give to us and keep us with men who are hard workers and men who are servants. That our pastors would be hard workers, toiling, struggling with all the energy that God supplies. Reminding us that pastoral ministry is not intended to be a semi-retirement option for those who are allergic to hard work. They labor. They toil. What did Paul say to Timothy? Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them that all might see your progress. We want the sort of men who work hard. And we want to encourage that sort of hard work in laboring for God's people. But we also want the sort of men who would be servants. Pray that your elders and any future elders would consider others more important than themselves that we would lay aside personal ambition, that we would lay aside prestige, that we would put to death the love of the praise of men. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of of others, have this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Hard workers who are servants. Would you commit to praying in this way? God, give us men who struggle and labor on behalf of your people. Give us men who toil with all the energy that you would provide to powerfully work in them that we might be faithfully equipped to do your goodwill. 
that is a wonderful prayer to pray. And I would plead with you to please be faithful in doing so. So what have we seen here? The need for faithful brothers, the comfort of fellow workers, the example of hardworking servants. Number four, the concern for persevering saints. Look at verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. The concern for persevering saints. Now, just upon reading that, you're wondering how we get in there from there. When we read this letter, alongside Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy, we find that the closing greetings are one of painful contrast. You'll find similarities. You'll find a list of names. You'll find closing instructions. You'll find parting greetings. But if you read them side by side and you compare what is being said and who is mentioned, there's a troubling concern that stands out to you. Paul mentions two men here included in the greetings to the Colossian church. Luke, the beloved physician. Luke, my faithful doctor. And he also mentions this man, Demas. Now, we know Luke was Paul's faithful traveling companion. He's mentioned several times in the book of Acts. If you read the Gospel of Luke, that's this Luke. If you read the book of Acts, that's been penned by this beloved physician, giving testimony to who Jesus is. And then there's this other man that he mentions here as he's writing to the Colossians, saying, not only does Luke greet you, Demas wants to say hello. He sends his greetings as well. Demas is mentioned several places in the New Testament. He's known as one of Paul's fellow workers. In 2 Timothy, we read this closing greeting, excuse me, in the closing greeting of uh, Philemon. Demas shows up again. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends greeting to you. So does Mark, Aristarchus, you sound familiar? Demas, Luke, fellow workers. So again, we find Luke and Demas alongside Paul, fellow workers. But compare that to the closing words, as we said, of 2 Timothy chapter 4. What does Paul say there? Verse 9. Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia. Titus, Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Two men show up again, Luke and Demas. Two men previously mentioned side by side on numerous occasions if they had the ability to take group photos after ministry together. No doubt you would look back and see, oh, there, there's Titus, there's, oh, there's Epaphras, there's Paul, there's Luke, oh, there's Demas in the back. He would have been those among them, a fellow worker with Paul and his ministry team. Two men previously mentioned side by side as workers in the gospel are now separated when it comes to 2 Timothy. One remaining faithful, the other not only abandoning his post, but his faith in love with this present world. Now, this is no small charge that Paul levels at Demas. To be a lover of this world is to be a lover of sensuality, a lover of self-seeking, 
It's to love pleasure and to seek out the path of convenience over conviction. It's to live for short-term gains with no eye towards long-term consequences. Can you hear the words of the Apostle John ringing in your ears as to the warning about the love of the world? 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And this world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do not love the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Luke, beloved physician, greets you. Demas greets you. Demas has departed in love with this present world. The sad reality is we think about this church and celebrating 15 years of God's faithfulness. We can probably also think back to those who used to be here who are no longer. Not because they joined another gospel-preaching church, but because they have loved this present world and they've departed. That's sadly grievous. And the painful reality is as well that there may be those, some, who are here today, who will not be among God's people in future years. Sin is deceptive. Sin is destructive. False professions are a sobering reality. That's why God has given to us the wisdom of his word and the care for one another, the importance of his body to care for one another, to watch over one another, to exhort one another, to warn, to rebuke, to exhort, to encourage in all things, teaching and admonishing one another, as Paul has been saying in Colossians 3, to provoke one another to love and good works, I haven't seen you in a couple weeks. You're doing okay. Hey, I noticed you slip out right away, and I haven't had a chance to see it. What's going on? We should catch up. Those are normal things to ask and good ways to care for one another. Hey, I've been seeing you consistently for a number of weeks. Let's catch up. I want to hear about everything good that God is doing in your life. Those are great conversations to have and things that ought to be happening amongst God's people because hypocrisy and self Deception, they promote a counterfeit Christianity where men and women seek to honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. And because of the high stakes of what we're talking about, Demas in love with this present world, because of the high stakes of what we're talking about, we must be explicitly clear on three things What is the gospel? What is a Christian? And what is the church? If we are unclear on the answers to those questions, over time, a church becomes very muddled and its distinctiveness becomes very blurred. And over enough time, God forbid, a church loses its witness. Jesus uses the analogy of removing a lampstand. My presence no longer here. What is the gospel? 
What is a Christian? What is the church? Those answers help us with a bit of clarity on why this is so important and how a love of the world being contrary to the love of the Father is such a glaring concern. What is the gospel? It's, well, it's the message of good news that God reconciles sinners unto himself. Those who deserve judgment get mercy. But what's a Christian? Well, a Christian is someone who's been born again. And because of God's mercy, they have new desires and new abilities. There's a proven, definitive change that God works into their life. And they're not sinless. But when they sin, they confess and repent sin. A Christian has a growing uncomfort, a growing dislike of unconfessed sin. It grates with them. They cannot put up with it. And they are driven to the point where they must bring that into the light and they gladly confess because they know they have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. A Christian is not sinless, but repents of sin as they believe in Christ. In a church then, the visible church is an organized assembly of regenerate believers, Christians gathered under Christ's authority with a particular authority that they have been given as they are led and overseen by pastors and served by deacons. Now, if we muddle these categories, if we're unclear on their importance and definition, eventually our version of Christianity becomes indistinguishable from the world. It's through the clear preaching of the gospel and the right administration of the ordinances that the church is distinguished and its members are discipled. The mention here of Luke and of Demas, it stands as a warning to us and a sobering charge for us that we're not playing church. That what is at stake here is the glory of the Lord Jesus and our love for one another. And therefore we love to listen to the instruction that he has given, and we gladly take it to heart, and we seek it to apply to our lives and exhort one another to do so. Don't make the mistake of believing that your longevity of your church attendance, or your years of service, or your theological knowledge is evidence of your belonging to Christ. Those in and of themselves are not necessarily evidence of being a Christian. A non-Christian can memorize things about God. A non-Christian can gather with God's people for many years. A non-Christian could even like to serve others. What is the gospel? What is a Christian? What is the church? The most important question is, are you trusting in Christ? Are you trusting in Christ? The principal acts of saving faith focus directly on Christ. Not what you feel, not ultimately what you've memorized, but are you trusting in Christ? The language of our confession, accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. I like that distinction. Accepting, I'm resting. 
and I'm receiving on Christ alone for understanding that I am right with God, that I'm being conformed to his image, and ultimately that I will dwell with him forever in glorified state. Trusting in Christ alone, that is the defining mark. There's one more observation we can make as we draw this to a close. There is lastly this charge for watchful ministers. Look how this ends in verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and Nympha, the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. Now, this last section, thematically, it's focused not ultimately on the church at Colossae, but the neighboring church in the neighboring city of Laodicea. Somewhat nearby, also contained fellow saints. There was a church apparently gathering in the home of this woman, and along with the instructions concerning the letters that were to be read and to be sent between them, Paul specifically charges the church to exhort one of its ministers. Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. I think the tone here, this closing charge that Paul gives, it's an echo of so many other charges that he gives elsewhere in his writings that Paul would give to ministers of the gospel. It's a charge to watch. It's a charge to take heed. It's a charge to be alert, to press forward, to remain faithful. See that you fulfill, that you complete, that you leave nothing lacking, that you are fully aware of what is before you in this ministry that you have received from the Lord Jesus. What else would Paul say to Timothy? In like like manner, he would say in 1 Timothy 4.16, Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save yourself and your hearers. Paul gathered the pastors, the elders at the church of of Ephesus before he departed there in Acts chapter 20. He exhorted these brothers, pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. Pay careful attention to yourself, and to God's flock. Or 2 Timothy 4.5, again, closing exhortations just before the last letter that we know that we have of Paul. What does he say to Timothy? As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The same thing that he exhorts Archippus to be doing. The concern here in Colossians is that Archippus will fill up or complete or be faithful to the ministry that he's received. We could say it this way. The concern is not his starting well, but his finishing well. And as we're praying that the Lord would raise up more elders, we need the sort of men who will take heed, who will watch themselves and their doctrine. We want all our pastors, we want all our elders to be the sort of men who understand that this ministry is something that's handed out by the Lord Jesus, and it's then received as a sobering and joyful privilege 
that produces men who will stay the course. What have I received? What am I charged with? Take heed. Personally, it's a solemn reality to reflect back on 16 years of pastoral ministry and mark out the men who have failed to fulfill the ministry that God has given them. Men who've ended up disqualified for moral failure or blatant doctrinal error. And yet, I know along with McShane that the same destructive seeds of sin dwell in my heart that came to fruition in their lives. Take heed. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, what I want you to notice in the midst of this exhortation is to who exactly it's given to. Within the context of Paul's letter, it's to the saints of Laodicea that are commissioned to charge Archippus, Pastor, go on. Be steadfast. Be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord Jesus. He writes to the church, say to him, Archippus, fulfill your ministry. Complete what you've received. Now, what do we need to hear in that? We need to hear that there is a responsibility among the members of Christ church, not only to pray for their pastors, but to exhort them. To remind them, by God's design, pastors are not walled-off emissaries from on high. They are certainly shepherds who are over the flock of God. But if you read 1 Thessalonians, pastors are not simply over. They are the sheep that are among. It's not this separate category of Christian that's completely distinct from any other teaching in the New Testament. Pastors are Christians. And therefore, they need the same sort of exhortations. It's not just that God speaks directly to them and God will take care of them and we just don't say anything. God places pastors over churches to serve as overseers and among the church as fellow members. Saints, exhort Archippus. Fulfill your ministry. I thank God for the various men and women who faithfully prayed for me, but even more so encouraged me, exhorted me, even taken me by the collar and saying, keep going. Take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. Be on guard. Pastor, don't let up. This is the sort of charge that faithful men and faithful ministers need to hear, and this is the sort of charge that a loving church and a faithful church seeks to give, to charge its ministers to be faithful. And so as we consider the book of Colossians, we are meant to be struck by the superiority, the sufficiency, the preeminence of Christ as it is seen in the centrality of the church. Yes, Jesus is preeminent. Yes, he is supreme. He's the creator who creates all things, holds all things, sustains all things, that he might be seen as preeminent, and he is the head of his body. God, in his kind wisdom, compels us to live our lives under his headship as his people. So Veritas Church, we gather this morning not only as an expression of the good fruit of the gospel, in a sense of, look what God has done. 
There's great encouragement in showing up at 699 Washington and saying, look at some of the fruit that God has done, and here we are. Look what the gospel produces. So when we gather, we're not only gathering as an expression of the good fruit that God produces, but as a reminder of God's means to guard us and grow us. Look what God has done, and look how God wants to continue to conform us to the image of his Son. Here we are. We're his body. We're not isolated individuals meandering our way to heaven. We are a fellowship of saints bound together, walking in unity with one another. You cannot read Colossians and not come away with that observation. Having died with Christ, having been raised with Christ, we now encourage and we exhort one another, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, teaching and admonishing one another, All of that new life that we have in Christ is meant to permeate who we are. So it ought to be normative to see our lives becoming more and more intertwined with one another, revolving around one another in the life of this church. It ought to seem odd when a member is out there like what used to be a planet, Pluto, way out there in the stratosphere and not close in orbit. Because God's means is that we would not only rejoice in what he has done, but that we would be encouraged and strengthened by what he is doing through our ministry to one another. So my prayer for us as a church, as we've mentioned, this landmark of of 15 years, a testimony of God's faithfulness to us, my prayer is this. It's got a couple parts. First of all, I thank God for you. Like Paul, I see your faith, your love for all the saints. I'm rejoicing as the gospel has come to bear fruit among you, seeing that. Like Paul, I do not cease to pray for you. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you might walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good season, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, with all endurance and patience with joy. And I rejoice to be your pastor. My aim is to continue to proclaim Christ, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that I may present you as mature in Christ. And it's my great joy, to use Paul's language, to toil at this, to struggle with all the energy that God would see fit to give me and your fellow elders. And, church, whatever we do, in word or in deed, may we do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's my prayer. That's my exhortation for us. And that's what I am so greatly encouraged by as we close this book of the Colossians. Let's look to him. Father, we do thank you so much for the transformative work of the gospel, the sort of news that transforms our very lives, our very lives together, and your very purposes for us in your world. We pray that you would continue to give us great clarity on what it means to be a Christian, 
that the gospel would continue to shape who we are and what we proclaim, and that, Father, you would be so faithful to continue to grow this church and mature it, that you would continue to cause much fruit to be born in it, and that through this church you would cause much more fruit to be born in your world as you seek to spread the good news of your Son, bring sinners to yourself, and glorify and magnify your wonderful grace in our lives. Father, give us great unity amongst ourselves. Give us a great unity in the gospel that we would bear with one another and forgive as we walk alongside. And would you cause the great testimony of this church to be uh, that we would be known in our love for one another, our love for you, and our love for evangelism. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.